A hundred odd years ago, a bloke called Boris Pasternak wrote a short book that was called, in his language, Povost. A tale. Which is a lazy title. No wonder it got a new name when it was translated into English. The Last Summer. It's the story of a young man called Sereja, who's on holiday. As he struggles to sleep in an unfamiliar room, he tries to conjure up the sensations of a hot summer's day, perhaps trying to create the conditions for a siesta. But the poor lad inadvertently brings up the memory of the most poignant summer of his life, the summer of 1914. The last summer when it was easier to love than hate, as the novel says. That was a summer of garden paths lined with lilac, of late nights with little darkness, of unconventional experimental love affairs. A summer when people had need for the word happiness. After that, his mates started to be summoned away. Just imagine, Sereja says a couple years later. Not one of us realised it was the mobilisation. World War One had begun. A season of some incident had also been the last one of innocence. Povost, a tale. In the summer of 2021, my friend Anna went upstream of the river Lopan. In the city it had been hot, pushing 30 degrees. Of a morning there would be groups of young people playing badminton or football or volleyball in the parks, but they didn't hang around throughout the afternoon. Ordinarily, Anna would go for ice cream on Sumska Street, or loiter in the Reisky bookmarken, flicking through the work of poets or sci-fi writers. Or she'd stay home, listening to death metal. But then her friend Oleksa had invited her horse riding. They could stay in an old hunter's cabin that Oleksa knew about. It wasn't exactly Anna's idea of a good time, but she figured she may as well do something different, or else it may become a long, hot summer. The countryside of East Ukraine is pretty. Rivers gently rove through the hills. They shelter nice stretches of forest. There's plenty of beech, willow and rowan, some pines. There are wild flowers and native herbs, Irises, dittany, mat daisies, chickweed, yarrow, violet willows. There are also wetlands with bulrushes and sedges and brackish lakes. This all creates habitat for a bunch of different birds. A twitcher might catch a glimpse of a couple hundred species in a single summer. Rustic buntings. Bearded reedlings, Eurasian rollers, green finches, gold crests, little crakes, 
short-toed tree creepers, golden plovers, woodlarks. Mostly the riding wasn't so demanding. It was a bit cooler in the countryside. The pair of horses ambled along without too much hassle. Cicadas croaked. Butterflies gallivanted about. Larvae made holes in leaves. They didn't see too many people around. Occasionally some haymakers. A man in waders, stumbling up the river with a fishing rod. There were abandoned old farmhouses around. Slanting sheds. Rusted old Soviet-era machinery with vegetation growing through it. If they thought about it, Anna and Oleksa may have remembered the history of their tragic country. That flat, grain-rich land that seemed to invite invasion. Perhaps the famine of the 30s would have come to mind if the two women hadn't grown up in Kharkiv, within Kui of the empty farms there. But surely it's only tourists and the elderly who think so incessantly on the past who scrounge around for reminders of what's gone by. Our histories are long buried by the time we are born. What's been lost never was for us. The sadness has somehow been normalised. When we're young, we're not inclined to think so much on the tragedies of so many summers ago. Anna and Alexa found the hunter's cabin, but it was much smaller and dowdier than Anna had thought. And there was only a single bed. They made a fire and cooked a pre-packaged meal over it, which tasted fairly dreadful. When night fell, there were strange calls outside, as well as the vaguely familiar song of frogs. Alexa said she could hear an owl. The two women awkwardly squeezed onto the skinny timber bunk. And that was how their love affair began. It was a summer of romance. The last summer. Now the days stretch long. The sun lingers around the mountains to the east in the mornings and loiters around the mountains to the west in the evenings. 
There is warmth. It coaxes shoots from the earth, brings forth leaves. And insects emerge. The world is redolent with the scent of pissants. I can't for the life of me get away from this smell. They throng on the elbow of a nearby eucalyptus, follow each other along an invisible track down the trunk, walk along the deck, and head off into the bushes. There's an alternate route that goes alongside the fire pit. Wherever I sit, I meet the ants. They fuss around my toes, get caught up in my leg hairs. Dusky wood swallows have returned after winter elsewhere. These are pretty birds, elegant in flight. On the tips of their tails there is a trim, two fine white stripes that look a little like neat squirts of shit. But they flit in tidy circles. And in summer they socialise, gathering in gangs, friendly and festive except when they get in fights with the bigger birds, the ravens and the kookaburras. Then scuffles take place in the foliage. The lawn is laced with weeds, innocuous little blighters like centauri or poor man's barometer. They dress exotically, in foreign fashions, in eye-catching shades of orange or pink in contrast to the tea trees that shine like unseasonable snow, or the prickly box that will put thick sprays of white through the bush like a mist that will not dissipate. Likewise, there are bugs that came once upon a time from far-off places, bumblebees and European wasps, and these have cosmopolitan tastes. They'll feed on anything that's in blossom, sometimes crumpling the flower's fragile parts as they do so, breaking anthers, strewing petals on the ground beneath them. There is a native wasp that visits, a mud dauber. Upon entry it makes a low, groggy drone, like a slightly unreliable engine in a tiny aeroplane. Its flight is stuttering as well, and slow, as it looks around the train carriage for somewhere to make a small shack for its offspring, an earthen case, just a few centimetres in length in which the young ones can grow out of harm's way, intermittently fed with spiders that the parent brings to them. I find these cells of dust all over the place, often much later, long after the nest has been inhabited then emptied. They're no trouble to me really, though I do have a wasp nest stain set permanently on the sleeve of a kimono that I happen to own. And once I noticed one of these native wasps 
beginning to build upon the pages of a book that was in quite good nick. So I impulsively swept the nest away and put the book on a different shelf. The nest builder returned with a load of mud to add, but couldn't find its previous handiwork. So it hovered around the bookshelf, investigating, probing the various corners, perhaps trying to make sense of the colours, or to find the pattern or shape that had drawn it to that stack of literature in the first place. Its buzzing became urgent. It sounded worried. I have not forgotten the feeling in the aftermath. I realised I'd induced some stress, caused a fellow traveller some grief. Each individual mud dauber wasp lives less than a year, so presumably it has no memory of the cycle of seasons, and perhaps little understanding of the passage of time. Although who really knows what concepts are smuggled in an insect's DNA? As for me, I wonder if, as each summer comes, it is not made as much of the present as it is the memories of other summers. Summer so often brings about adventures, bushwalks, road trips, love affairs, new friendships. Backpackers pass through your life. You go to concerts, sail or paddle, hang around in campgrounds. This is my fifth summer in the train carriage, my sixth under this particular mountain range. I realise now that I have a huge store of memories, cherished treasures. They layer up. In the front yard it is like I can see an after image of various visitors. Stories tangle like scrub along the river. I have been lucky enough to join the spinning wheel here in this valley so many times that I'm aligned, in a way, with the sun's routines, the rhythms of flowering and fruiting, the return of native wasps and dusky wood swallows. Even the pungent scent of piss ants is so closely mixed with certain special reminiscences that I reckon somewhere down the track, if I ever get exiled or put into a nursing home, you might be able to bring me that perfume and a single spray will prompt a flurry of yarns. As many anecdotes, perhaps, as there are ants crowding on the elbow of that tree. Much of the joy of summer comes from the fact that it recurs, that the seasons proceed in an order, that they are in their way predictable. You look forward to summer in a way that mud dauber wasps can't. Certain markers signal its beginning. A curtain falls and it's hard to bring up other months and other moods.
to recall them to mind. Mushrooms, fallen leaves, frost. You muster up images of them. But for now they are concepts. Literary conceits. Yet you know that they're just around the corner. That is part of it as well. The summer doesn't stick around forever. Once again, it will end. And then there is cricket. The first thing that I liked about cricket was discovering the names of people from other countries. I was curious about what you might be called if you were from Sri Lanka, Zimbabwe, Barbados, or England. And the names of cricketers from my childhood still stay fixed in my memory. I mention them now as a kind of mantra, an incantation that brings an element of those years back to me. Anil Kumble, Chamindravath, Junior Murray, Ijaz Ahmed, Makaya Ntini. I bowled a bit like Paul Adams, the South African leg spinner. Of him it was said that as he tossed the ball, he looked like a frog churned around in a blender. I prefer to say that it was more like I was a puppet with twisted strings. Either way, it wasn't an ideal technique. No one ever trained me to bowl like this and it took a long time to unlearn this ungainly style. Now cricket is a slow game. It's too slow for some. But my brother and I played for hours on end, in a backyard that had a noticeable tilt. A lot of time was wasted retrieving the tennis ball from the bushes. Sometimes our dog helped with the fielding, Not very often. Eventually we moved the games to the cul-de-sac where my cousin lived, or else to a vacant block nearby. We even got neighbours involved, 
and one year we instigated a big neighbourhood match. The prize was a homemade trophy. We nailed an empty can of beer to a plank of wood and we called it the Stubby Cup. Nobody corrected us. More recently, I've discovered a side effect of looking for stray balls amidst the shrubbery. You can do a bit of botanising while you're there. If you're lucky, you may find rare herbs, dainty little flowers that grow in sheltered places. On the day of the stubby cup, my cousin went to get the ball from a clump of gorse that had sprouted its square leg. He stumbled backwards and shouted that he'd seen a tiger snake. For no particular reason, none of us believed him. Yet he insists on it to this day. The slowness of cricket and the sport's many absurd and esoteric elements make it a great game for storytellers. The commentators prattle on, using the space between all the action to recount yarns from yonks ago. Yes, Michael, I do remember that test in Kingston in 78. The fast bowler Fitzpatrick famously got lost on his way back to the rooms at lunch. There was a delicious mutton curry served that day, and he was absolutely livid that he missed it. If I remember correctly, his wife left him after that tour. There's an adage in sports that a player is only as good as their last performance. But in cricket, such is the ubiquitous nature of nostalgia, this may not be the case. I certainly hope not. By my reckoning, I should be eternally judged against an innings I made in a mate's backyard when I was 15 years old. I belted him around that paddock. It was a long couple of hours for him. Or else I'd like to be known for the century I hit in the cul-de-sac, also as a teenager. My uncle was bowling, and although he rarely went easy on us kids, he was really hurling them in as I neared my hundred. I stood my ground. I reckon it was late January, maybe early February. And for the rest of that year, I could be proud. A couple summers back, I was invited to play games for a recreational team, an infamous mob of amateur athletes, whose average age wasn't far off being double of my own. I'd been roped in by a good mate who no longer has the health to roll his arm over or run between wickets, so he was the scorer. I waited with him in the pavilion for my turn to bat, padded up, eavesdropping on a discussion about different teammates in matches that had happened over the course of the past decades. Finally the time came to waddle out to the wicket. Doesn't matter what score you get, someone said, a non-participant. Just have fun. They meant well, but I yelled back at them. Doesn't matter what score I get. 
Haven't you just heard these buggers gas-bagging? Whatever happens out there, someone will be talking about it in 30 bloody summer's time. Cricket's a slow game. Felt like I was out there for hours as all those eyes were watching me. Even though I only made four runs. But you remember that time I hit a century in the cul-de-sac, right? There are places you can go only in summer. Over the high passes or down the long peninsulas. Up honey-coloured creeks that climb to craggy facades. Across meadows matted with colourful flowers. Of course, the intrepid can tour anywhere. With ropes and crampons. With heavy-duty jackets and gloves with heaters in the fingertips. There are roads that are open and inviting in summer. There are bays and coves that summon travellers. On a late evening near the summer solstice, the view of buttongrass plains from a high mountain vantage point is legendary. Immortal. You could be there in winter and it would have its beauty too. But it'd be dark by 5pm, and for hours you'd be in your tent. There are places that you can go only in summer. Some years ago, I won't pretend I remember it personally, but they reckon that the yarn was passed down for a long, long time so that those who were told the story in childhood may well have believed the event happened within recent memory. Some years ago, a family walked south on a summer morning. We say they walked, but they may well have waded. They were crossing wetlands, all reeds and water weeds, their leg hairs wet up to their knees, 
their waists. Their bodies lengthened into lean shadows. The sun was the colour of kangaroo fat. There wasn't much heat in it yet, but later on they'd happily splash and look for the deeper ponds to dive into to refresh themselves. And they'd hunt. There were abundant other animals sloshing around, their scat squatting on pads of moss, their paw prints in the mud. The family carried spears, they carried clubs, they carried fire. And they walked, as always, with songs on their lips. Can't say where they came from exactly. Can't say why they were venturing further south, into cooler latitudes along those sodden plains with the gaunt granite mountains alongside them, looming over them in the distance. The tale was never passed on to me directly. I learned it the boring way, through hearsay and deduction. But I think it went like this. Melodies rose from the family's mouths. The muscles on their fit legs stretched through the marsh. Dirt flicked up from their flat feet. And when finally they saw an echidna, they clobbered it. Or if they saw a wallaby, they flung their weapons. And they caught parrots in traps. At times they had to pick a route across a submerged swamp. Or they half swam through thick, sediment-laden creeks. But in the late afternoon they crossed to somewhere that seemed a bit drier and then saw the banks of a broad river, Stonia country, a place where plants took root, where you could build a good fire, where maybe even it was easier for people to make a home base as well. About 10,000 years ago, the glaciers all melted and the water levels rose. We'd had an extended ice age, but the earth was heating up. I remind you, I wasn't there. This is just what they tell me, but it all adds up. The glaciers held great volumes of water, but now it was being released, year by year, summer by summer. Each degree warmer the world got. As the seasons passed, families and friends would have gathered to discuss the changes. Former campsites were submerged. The wetlands spread, inundated, until at last they swelled beyond shallow hills to the east and west and met salt water. The old granite peaks became mountains in the sea. The whole southern end of the peninsula became an island. The land to the north a distant memory. Mythical. The unfolding of such events would be told again and again. A strand of yarns through the generations. Each telling would take on a more poetic cast till the events became abstract and universal. 
so kids who didn't know nothing about no mainland could glean something from the stories as well. Strange to think that we too will tell of irrevocable change to country we once knew. Unrevisited perhaps forever, southward from the capes of smoke, where past and present to the waters are one, and the peninsula's end points out, three fingers down the night. So wrote Lawrence Durrell, who lived in a different era, on a different continent, with a rather different life. And yet I know the place he talks about. I'm almost sure of it. That beach to which you can only hike, where the headlands break off like a biscuit in three pieces, into the ocean, which has no tents, no case, no language at all. Where you can still catch a whiff of the smoke of communal fires, even though they were snuffed out yonks ago. Where the horizon is as blue as a glacier, and Antarctica's just over that ridge. The place, of course, is not on a map. And when I say that there are places you can go only in summer, I just as much mean that there are occasions and opportunities. Almost always we get one time, and one time only. And then it's mostly lost. For a long time, wherever in the world I was, I daydreamed about this, this tremendous season, summer in Tasmania. Now here I am, alone on the oft-washed cobbles along the river, with a can of beer cooling in a runnel, dripping wet, in the nude, 
about to open a long novel. Her skinks appear from crevices between the rocks, naked like me, and sunbathing too. Only once did I leave Tasmania in summer. I was in my early twenties, and I'd been counting down the days till I would leave, having worked and studied, having had just about my fill of all of that, of that kind of life. And thus came the moment when I took a flight at sunrise from Launceston Airport. Much to my grandmother's disappointment, it was six days before Christmas, a couple of days before the solstice. Soon enough, I would be on another continent, in a different time zone, where the season was something else altogether. Now in any other part of my life, I'd have a definitive account of the day before I flew out. But it was on the subsequent travels that I famously lost the notebook in which I'd jotted down those thoughts. So I can't read from my records. I'm forced to resort to pure memory. Which in this case, so many years later, comes across as pretty feeble. I can tell you that it was an overcast day. Not abnormal for December, but not ideal either. I had some friends around. My brother was there, my cousin, some old mates, and a couple of new friends too. Despite the grey skies, we went for a swim. Some driftwood had floated down the river. One of our party swam out and got it. She lingered in the middle of the waterway for a bit and then dragged it over to the rest of us. The dark water made concentric circles around her stomach as she leaned on the log. One day, I knew, I'd be back to swim in that stream again. But I wondered if that particular mate would still be there if I'd ever see her again. Lonnie is a good garden town, and among its pleasures are many ornamental locut trees. The locut is an underrated fruit, like a pert yellow plum with four perfect pits, brown stones washed smooth in a stream. As far as I can tell, I'm the only person who's ever picked these trees. There are some in West Lonnie, some in Norwood, with fruit on them right now if you're interested, and in the neighbourhood. I can even give you a delicious recipe for locut kebabs if you like. But I digress. That December I left just as the locuts appeared on the trees. Maybe I got one or two of them into my guts, but I missed the best of them the most of them. 
a season of scrumping and scrounging free, fresh fruit straight from the street. It happened without me. All through my travels I thought about those locates. It struck me that as much as I had gained through my curiosity and wanderlust, I'd also lost some things as well. There were friendships that would fundamentally change, or which would end altogether. There were plans, schemes and dreams that wouldn't reach their culmination. There were places to which I wouldn't return. I was not to see the ocean for six months after I left the country. I didn't see Christmas beetles, wallabies with full pouches, leatherwood flowers, the turning of the fagus, the sprouting of fungi. And I missed the locusts. But then I will never forget the homecoming. I returned unannounced at the beginning of the next December. And it was a summer of swimming, of dinner parties, of getting lost in rainforests. My new housemate walked across the road to a public phone to call into his job and quit it so we could go and check out a waterfall. I wore a sarong most days, let my facial hair grow like a pinkberry bush all over my face, and I started a storytelling show in a cafe. The ticket price was two bucks. I lost money on it most weeks. Somehow, though, I seemed to be keeping afloat. Like a log had washed down the river, and I was leaning on it, buoyant. Some things had become apparent. At least a few of us were coasting by on pure luck. One thing that came with that, however was a willingness to accept with gratitude whatever we could get. The free fruit of the locust tree was only one of a million bountiful gifts that turned up in those months. Another idea that became clear that summer was that the good luck would peter out. Pretty soon, probably. So we ought to make the most of it, I thought because this might be the last summer of such liberty. Soon would come the scenario in which we'd have to get a bit more serious about money, about a lot of things maybe. We couldn't just spin yarns and swim and surf, camp and dumpster dive and go travelling all our lives. Someday the summer would come where we'd have to slave away, We would be enlisted in some all-consuming task that would mean we could barely notice the flowers coming and going or admire certain insects. Someday there would be a summer in which we wouldn't even sneak out for a skinny dip. Someday, I knew. Someday. although it hasn't happened yet.